This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast, episode 10, Anthony Burgess and Italy. Anthony Burgess uh, was thinking about Rome throughout his life and from his childhood onwards, really, long before he, he moved to Rome in the 1970s. Uh, what, what do you think the, the power of Rome was for Burgess? When he was a boy, Burgess used to think about where he was from, Catholic from the north of England, all that. And he says at various points when he's writing about his life, that London is not the capital of his country, as he thinks about it, that it's either Dublin or else it's Rome. Um, Dublin, a Catholic city, as he thinks of it, also James Joyce's city, or Rome because it's the the sort of HQ of of Roman Catholicism. So he's got this uh, affinity for Rome as a a Catholic city long before he ever sets foot there. Um, And, of course, his teachers... A lot of these Avarian brothers would have spent time in Rome and sold it to him. He'd studied Latin at school. And we know he'd read his Virgil very carefully, and that formed the subject of his first novel. So there are various reasons why he thinks of Italy as, um, in some sense, his home country. And then, of course, marrying Liana in 1968, he talks about he's married into the continent. It's sort of natural that at some point he's going to spend time living there, I think. Why Italy? Well, why not? Italy is a good country to be in. Uh, it takes uh, writers and artists moderately seriously. At least it doesn't regard them as bloody fools, as they are regarded in England. And um, from a very personal viewpoint, uh, I am a Lancastrian, which means I don't find the south of England, where culture takes place, very sympathetic. And I'm also a Catholic. I belong to a long, long line of Catholics whom the Reformation never hit, And this is a sort of Catholic country. The district I'm living in is very communist, but uh, there are statues around, people make the sign of the cross, and the Pope isn't far away, and I feel more at home here. I mean, in many ways, Burgess never feels at home when he's in England. And for a long time during the period of his first marriage, he felt more at home in France uh, and inhabiting French as a language. So when he was married to his first wife, Um, Between them, they translated three novels out of French. And later on, he goes on to translate um, Cyrano de Bergerac out of French. So it's quite late in life. He's about 50 before he really starts to learn Italian for the first time. And I think that's partly through Liana. We have to. uh, To survive, we have to think of ourselves as Europeans. And we have to speak languages. We have to learn the European mind. And we're unwilling to do it. Burgess, when he wrote Enderby, he had he had been to to Rome on a on a holiday in the mid nineteen fifties with his first wife and and her parents. This holiday was largely a, an inspiration for the writing about Rome in in Enderby, but also that holiday comes back in some of his other writing about Rome, in particular Beard's Roman Women, which uh, begins with this sort of formative holiday to Rome and the throwing the coins in the fountain. And um, 
sort of yearning to return to Rome right from his first visit. So it, it sort of incorporates this romantic view of the city right from the first words, really, that he wrote about about Rome. The peculiar nature of the writer's life is that uh, he is not anywhere. He is not like the sculptor who needs a studio, a big studio, and settles down there with his big masses of stone. Uh, he's a man with a typewriter and a wad of paper. And uh, wherever he is, he wonders why he's there, why he's not somewhere else. And this tendency to wander is um, one of the results of uh, leaving England and, uh, and going into exile. Exile is uh, not really applicable to uh, one country. I'm in exile in Italy. One doesn't say that. I'm in exile, and at the moment I happen to be in Italy. So we should say something about um, where they were living. There was a place in Rome um, which appears in Beards, Roman Women. And at the same time, Burdis and Liana were also living um, at a place just north of Rome called Bracciano, which is a town by the side of a volcanic lake. Um, and so they're simultaneously occupying a place right in the centre of things, which I think is a sort of business address where they go for work, and Bracciano, which is where he goes to do his writing. And a lot of the manuscripts in the Burdis Foundation's collection have come out of that house in Bracciano. Um, but Graham, what's your sense of the, uh, the the place in Rome? How does Burdis describe that to us? Well, um, it's important to to make a distinction between Bracciano, which is a house that the Burgesses bought, and the flat in Rome, which was a place that that they rented off a off a friend. Um, the the decor in the in the flat in in Rome was very much the decor of the owner of the flat, not the Burgesses. There were pictures of Karl Marx on the wall. Um, and uh, it was a, probably a fairly odd place for Burgess to inhabit in that way. There's a famous picture, isn't there, of, of him standing at the top of the spiral staircase. And that staircase uh, has a place within Beards, Roman Women as well. Um, I don't want to say too much about it, but it's it's kind of structurally important to the novel. So... This is quite unusual, I think, for a writer to make their own place of dwelling and habitation so much a part of the text of the, the novel. Okay, so in in Rome, um, and Roman Bracciano was a particularly creative time for for Burgess. Uh, the nineteen seventies in general was, was one where he he entered a very experimental phase of his his career um which, which books were were the sort of key key texts that burgess wrote in in italy well we're thinking about the period uh, 1970 to about 1975 when he really left italy not permanently but he he stopped living there most of the time and the first novel that comes out of that period is mf which he finished, um, as we learn from the final chapter, on the shores of Lake Bracciano, uh, where the character Miles Faber ends up. And this is pretty much documentary writing, but it's describing uh, the great wind coming across the lake that's blowing bits off the house. And, and so you can see once again that he's making fiction out of the materials that are originally around him. 
Um, the other important novel that comes out of the early 70s is Napoleon's Symphony, which is written as a possible film vehicle for Stanley Kubrick and dedicated to Liana and Kubrick jointly. And that's a book that's written in Rome between about 1972 and 1974. And it's written in two big, you know, kind of um, chunks, as it were. And that's completely a, a Rome book. The other thing that he wrote when he was there, incidentally, was the Oedipus translation. And there's an exchange of letters between Burgess and Stanley Silverman, the composer, uh, in which he writes about spending a summer in Bracciano. Um, and when Silverman went to visit him in Trastevere, they went and they played the organ in, in the church of Santa Cecilia, which was just across the street from where the, the Burgesses lived. Um, so he's doing a lot of writing. Uh, and then later on in the 70s, there are two other books that come out of his, his period of residence in Italy. There's Earthly Powers, of course, which is mostly set in Italy, a story about an Italian family. And he'd been working on that for about 10 years. But also a non-fiction book called They Wrote in English, which is um, written for Italian readers. They're written in English. And that's a history of English literature. Uh, and that'll be coming back quite soon in the Irwell edition. Adam Rounce is editing that. And most people have not read it because it, it's been quite hard to find. So there's this huge period of um, creativity. And in the middle of it, you've got the two novels about Rome. There's Beards, Roman Women, and then there's Abba Abba, the, the Keats Belly novel. So, um, Graham, maybe you could just sort of tell us more about Beards, Roman Women, um, what happens, what's it all about, where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, it, it's... It begins at least as an autobiographical novel and I don't think it it plays out as an autobiographical novel but it, it begins with the the death of the main character's wife from cirrhosis of the liver after 26 years of marriage which is exactly um, Burgess's situation uh, his first wife died of cirrhosis of the liver after 26 years of marriage in 1968 and after after which he met Liana and moved via Malta to to Rome. Beards, Roman Women and Abba Abba are, are sort of the most direct engagements with with Rome as a city in Burgess's fiction. Beards, Roman Women is a con contemporary set novel set in the in the late sixties, early seventies. Um it details a writer who has who has recently lost his first wife and uh has moved to Rome to be with a, a new, a new love, uh, but unfortunately he can't be happy because his wife, uh, the ghost of his first wife, uh, appears to telephone him as he's trying to work on a script uh, that details the life of of Byron and Shelley. But really, it's a, a novel about place as well the city is a, is a character within the novel it becomes a sort of purgatory um in the novel where where the main character ronald beard is 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 trying to make sense of his life rome can be domineering imperious rome can be corrupt rome can be vicious but rome can never be ungenerous rome gives of all her sensual treasures without stint 
Graham, uh, tell us about mythology. This is the other thing, the very um, anti-autobiographical thing that's happening in Beards, Roman Women. Burgess has clearly been mugging up on his classical mythology in order to write this, uh, as it were, ghost story about um, people who, who disappear, people who die, people who go missing. The book is sort of haunted by... It's also haunted by his sense of mythology as well. What do you make of that? Beards, Roman Women is really a modern recreation of the Orpheus myth. Um, he's, he's retelling the myth in a way that's quite similar to Jean Cocteau's film Orphée, in which uh, uh, an artist is, is bereaved and, and has supernatural experiences. Ronald Beard in the novel, he's not much of an artist, though, is he? Because, I mean, Orpheus makes beautiful music, but, but as Burgess represents him... I mean, Beard is this kind of clapped-out scriptwriter. He's doing things for the telly, and he's he's kind of Burgess, but at the same time, he's sort of despicable, don't you think? Yeah, I I, I had this theory when I was when I was editing the book that that the male characters in the book are all a different facet of Burgess. So you've got the main character, Ronald Beard, who is a, a hack screenwriter, um, who who's sort of in it for the money, and that's that's what he he does. He he converts great literature into into cheesy Hollywood musicals, and you've got the the literary novelist who this is Pathan in the book. Yeah, who who is a sort of loose caricature of of V. S. Naipaul. Well, you can I say think, that now. He's died. Yeah, <laughs> he, he is the sort of. The, the person Burgess wishes he could be almost, the, the literary novelist who is making money and a, receiving awards and great uh, acclaim for being a, a literary novelist. Burgess has split himself between this kind of hack writer and, and the lit writer who's, yeah. who's kind of pure and unsullied. And, of course, in his own life, as you've suggested, he, he's sort of both at once. He's never quite sure which way to, to jump. Is he high culture? Is he low culture? journalism tv and and oddly enough he's he's all of these things and i suppose you do see those divisions coming through in these novels yeah you you see the divisions so the way he talks about um in in interviews particularly he talks about the division between the writing he does for money the journalism the the screenwriting and the 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 writing of of fiction the writing of literary fiction um in one interview with Robert Robinson he he talks about the ghost of Henry James coming uh, appearing to him appearing next to his writing desk and telling him off for writing too many scripts and really he should be writing novels and I, I think that anxiety is is depicted in in Beard's Roman Women. So Graham you prepared this new edition of Beard's Roman Women the first time the book's been available for about 40 years actually and, and certainly the first time You've been able to read it as Anthony Burdis and David Robinson intended, with the pictures intact. Um, and maybe you could tell us something about what went wrong with, with previous attempts to, to put the text together with pictures and, and why this time um, you know, a better job has been done of that. The story is sort of quite long and, and convoluted, but, but my introduction in the new edition uh, goes into it in a lot of detail. Um, but just a, a general summary was that, that this was one of the first times a novel had been put together with pictures. And I, I get the impression personally that, that nobody really knew how to do that. So 
um, McGraw-Hill, who were the, the publisher in America, for reasons, I think, of economy more than anything, published the photos in quite a, a stingy way. They, they were small. They were black and white, a lot of them. Um, they they had borders around them which which diminished the the uh, the, the end result really. Um, and some of them were left out as well. Some of them were left out, yeah. So David Robinson took, I think, in total, he took about seventy pictures of of Rome um, with about twenty that were meant to be, that were sort of earmarked for for the Burgess project. And 17 were selected out of that 20 to go in the book. But in the first edition, only 13 appeared. The new edition has all 17 that were originally earmarked for the project in the book in full colour and um, in full bleed, which means they they go all the way to the end edges of the page. So they're bigger. They They have more impact than when they were originally published. We worked very, very closely with David Robinson to achieve what he expected the first edition to be. So this Irwell edition really is a sort of second chance at a first edition, really. In this new edition, you prepared a very copious set of uh, endnotes, annotations. What were the challenges in getting that material together, Graham? The text incorporated so many different cultural elements. Um, this, this was the world that Burgess was sort of stewing in almost and and it brought together um literary references it brought together musical references it brought together references of um brands of italian culture of all sorts of things from the mid 70s that that have completely been lost to time really and and it sort of mashed them together with with songs that you know italian crooner songs that i had to sort of find and find out when they were first recorded and um literature especially it goes from from things like Wordsworth to Byron and Shelley uh Frankenstein uh it incorporates the classical literature Orpheus it incorporates Italian literature as well in particular the poet Belly Giuseppe Giochino Belli, guard this way into Trastevere. He was schizophrenic in a sense, a Vatican official. Indeed, he was a censor of theatrical presentations. But in his spare time, he wrote 2,279 sonnets in the Romanesco language of the streets, creating a voice for the common people common people who had always been downtrodden by popes as well as by bureaucrats. Belly was a figure that, that Burgess sympathised with immensely. Um, uh, he was a, a Catholic who, who worked for the Catholic Church, who um, criticised the Church immensely in, in, uh, in his sonnets. And I, I think... Uh, Burgess felt a kinship with Belly. Um, Burgess was a lapsed Catholic. He he was critical of the Catholic Church, even at the same time as he, he was sort of enthralled to the Catholic Church. Well, this brings us on to Abba Abba, which is the other uh, novel about Rome that's also appearing in the Irwell edition. And Belly in uh, ABBA, as we should call it, is 
another. Uh, he's actually one of the characters. He's he's central to the the direct story, not just as a, a kind of memory or a cultural reference. And in Abba Abba, Burgess stages this fictional meeting, this encounter between John Keats, who's gone to Rome to die, and the poet Belly, who is not yet published, and he he wasn't published in his lifetime. So his work is circulating in manuscript, and some of it falls into. Keats's hands and he decides to translate Belly uh, which he does in the novel and then uh, Belly discovers the manuscript and is very angry and he destroys the poem this final Keats poem so of course it's never published but it is there in the text of the novel so Abba Abba is um, edited by Paul Howard it's the most recent volume to join the Irwell edition uh, and Graham, I think Burgess gave some thought to publishing these two books together because there are two novels about Rome, Belly features in both of them, and though they were published separately, there is a suggestion from the letters we've found that he wanted them united in a single volume. Yeah, I, there's there's evidence that that he was he was pitching these books, I think, to Faber, yeah, um, as uh, two tales of Rome, and and the books do speak to each other in in that he he has clearly written them with each each of the books in mind as he's writing both of them um the beard's apartment uh appears in abba abba um is it belly's apartment in abba abba it's a friend of his a translator yeah, yeah. um and uh the Bracciano house is also mentioned. There's someone living out there and, and yeah. members of liana's family so there're all these kind yeah. of connections between yeah. the two books um, and even though Faber didn't publish them together, or really at all, they only published Abba Abba, Burgess still tr- attempted to publish them together in other countries, most notably, I think, Japan, in which they were going to be published under the same title, Two, Ta- Two Tales of Rome, by the Sanrio Company. But for whatever reason, um, probably because they thought they could make more money on publishing two books, uh, they they published them separately. Mm. The history of Abba Abba is really the history of Burdis's engagement with Belly initially, because we think this comes first. I mean, Paul Howard argues this in his introduction to the book, that um, there are two halves to Abba Abba. There's, uh, there's the story of Keats, uh, the encounter with Belly, and the second half is Burdis's translations of Belly's poems into Lancashire dialect. But we think the second half was written first, and that Burgess begins with this idea that he's going to translate Belly and that he's always wanted to be published by Faber because it was T.S. Eliot's publishing house. So he wanted a book of his poems or his translations uh, and he ends up with something that's a hybrid. It it actually joins their fiction list. It's half and half. But um, we think Belly comes first and Keats, though it's a very good story about Keats, comes quite late to the party. Yeah, I, I think it, it's it's clear from the life of of Burgess's translations of Belly that that he had been working on those since at least early 1975. But not working by himself. Not working by himself. No. So he worked with his wife Liana, who was by trade a literary translator. She tra- translated uh, books by Thomas Pynchon. Um, and Lawrence Darrell, and she translated Burgess as well, the Malayan trilogy and Earthly Powers Liana did into Italian, and the End of the World News, actually. 
Yeah, and um, they also worked with someone called Susan Roberts, who who actually appears in in Abba Abba as Susan Roberti. Yeah, and she's a professional translator at the European Parliament now. She was yeah. very young when she uh, she stayed with the Burgesses and somehow got embroiled into this project of translating a belly sonnet every day. Uh, and we think from the manuscripts that we've got here that Susan Roberts would make a literal English translation and then Burgess would get to work um, versifying them. And sometimes Liana would help with the, re- the translating and the, the, the revision as well. So it's a kind of three-person industry to get the, this, um, this set of translations of Belly um, completed. And, and we're very clear about the way they work together um, because of recordings we have in the, the archive. And here we can show you uh, the, the three of them reading a single uh, sonnet by Belly. Uh, Liana reads it in Romanesco. Susan Roberts reads it in a literal translation uh, into English. And Burgess reads it in Lancashire dialect. Bit. 
went then to Colonel Oates instead and said, Posterity, you're in the shit. So the other thing that's there, as we've said, in Abba Abba is Keats. Uh, and we've got in the library at the Burgess Foundation uh, Burgess's collection of books about John Keats, uh, many of which appear to have been bought from the same shop, possibly even on the same day. I think he's gone into the big English-language bookshop in Rome. All the prices are written in Italian lira in the books, and he's just cleaned them out, everything on the shelf relating to Keats. He's bought them all. But two particular books are important. There's Walter Jackson Bates' biography of John Keats, um, um, but also, as important as a source, is Robert Gitting's biography of John Keats. And the, the Rome section of that, which is really chapter 28 onwards, Burgess seems to have drawn on very carefully for his Keats narrative and wanting to establish the details of um, you know, what Keats is doing in Rome, who he's with during his final days. The other piece of research that he did was actually um, he visited the Keats house in Rome on the Piazza di Spagna, and he, he gave a lecture and a reading of Keats's poetry, um, which he writes about in his autobiography. Sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer. Much have I travelled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told, that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortes when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak. In Darien. There's a curious sort of um, postscript to what we've been saying about books, which is that the manuscript collection that's now here in Manchester has come to us from this house in Bracciano, which was a kind of time capsule. It was right at the end of Liana Burgess's life when she decided to create the Burgess Foundation. That um, our predecessors who worked here, they went into the house in Bracciano, which had been locked up for nearly 25 years and nobody had particularly lived there, and they discovered in that house um, thousands of books, but also literary manuscripts. Uh, and the core of the archive collection here, the literary papers and so forth, have come out of that house. So um, in a sense, we don't fully understand what he was writing in Italy because we've not yet got to the bottom of it. We've catalogued the papers, but there's still more work to be done on the notebooks and the poems and the scripts uh, and the short stories and the manuscript. So um, though we can read these novels that he published, we still, I think, haven't got to the bottom of the story. There, there's still more to be said about this big subject of, of Burgess and Italy and his engagement with Italian culture more widely. This podcast featured Graham Foster and Andrew Biswell 
and was recorded at the International Anthony Burgess Foundation in Manchester. For more information, visit www.anthonyburgess.org or find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>